I went to my mother's funeral on Saturday, took my brother and his two sons down. Um, on the whole, uh, it was wonderful seeing family. Women I've listened to, she's certainly way up there among the most important, next to my wife, my mom, my sisters, my daughters. Um, one of the great, great things that I did had the presence of mind to do was sit down with my mother, my birth mother, for hours of interviews. And I strongly recommend that for anyone. Talk to them now. Preserve their voices. Um, she left a, a note tablet. It's one of the very few things I got other than like one blanket and some photos. But the most important thing I got from my mother was her time in doing me the great honor of telling me her story. Um, I'm going to start teaching this skill of preserving these stories in a variety of ways. And if you're interested in that, it, it's a course I've designed with the help of some real experts called Own your story, O-W-N. Everything from, you know, copyright trademarks, intellectual property, this crazy world of NFTs, non-fungible tokens, and who you leave your story to, all the way that, all the way back down to just take out your phone, open the voice memo, and hit record. Um, because our lives and our times here are so precious. If you're interested in this class or in learning more about that, shoot me an email. The easiest way to remember is man, M-A-N, if you can spell man, man at manlistening, one word, dot com. And, um, and I'll get back in touch with you. I am going to cap the number of people who can take this course at one time. So, And we start next week. So thanks so much. And when someone doesn't show up, it's like the tablecloth just gets ripped from under the meal and everything goes flying. And what happens is all the work that I've put in the past day or week or month, you know, appearing okay or in working to be okay, just gets, it all gets, and I have to start all over again. What is the sound of one man listening? This is Man Listening, a fresh podcast featuring the stories of strong women who bounce back. Man Listening, because every woman deserves to be heard. Hi, I'm Stuart Watson, and welcome to Man Listening. This week, one of my favorite people on the planet, Anne Heffron, who was my writing coach for more than two years, got me started. No way my memoir gets written without Anne Heffron. Uh, who I met through a group of adoptees. We are both adopted persons. And she taught me so much, love her book. It's called You Don't Look Adopted. She's come a long way since then. She and another woman I'm a huge fan of, Pam Cordano, have run a series of workshops for let's say a dozen adoptees at a time. I'm usually one of like two men in the room. You'll hear her reference Pam Cordano and some coursework that they're doing now. And so that'll make some sense when you hear it. She is so wonderful. And she has come such a long way from being really kind of bitter 
to being a person who is hopeful and optimistic and life-affirming and looking toward the future. And she and I just have a wonderful conversation. Uh, here's my friend, Anne. Where were you born? I was born in Manhattan. In New York? Yes. How do you know? Um, it's on my birth certificate. Have you seen your birth certificate? Actually, it is in the mail right now. Um, you got original, it. Well, no, but I thought I had gotten it because I ordered it. And the first time I, I ordered it when New York opened up the birth certificates, but I put the wrong name on it. I put my birth name, but I was supposed to put my name. So that one, they said they couldn't find me. And then I kind of just said, forget it. I thought I'll try again. And I sent in all this stuff and I didn't realize that I had gotten an email saying, okay, you passed the first step. Now you have to do these four things. You have to get this document certified. You have to send a picture of your license. You have to send 15 more dollars after the $40 that you already sent. So last week or two weeks ago, I went and did that. And I felt extraordinarily proud of myself. And you even have to, I almost forgot to send the self-addressed stamped envelope. Like there's so many it's things. Like, like, it's like how many, it's like witches broomsticks to the Wizard of Oz. Um, how did you feel about having to do all of that? Oh, I felt it was ridiculous. Um, but I also felt, I, I mostly I felt super proud that I had done all the steps. <laughs> I'd actually followed through and done all the steps. And it seemed at this point, it just feels like a game. What was your name on your original birth certificate? Was, do you know what it says? Yeah, it says Sarah Ellen Stenard. Wow. And how- I think, I'm not sure feel, how to pronounce it, but- When you see that name- I haven't seen it. What do so, you think of Sarah? Know, like if you'd have grown up a Sarah. Yeah, no, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> you're happy being Anne. I think not... Sarah's a I think Sarah's a really pretty name. I think it's a little fluffier than Anne. And I think I grew up into an Anne. Like an Anne is sort of, you know, Anne's the person who like you can count, you can count on Anne's the person that will return your library books for you. Like, hey Anne, <laughs> we do me a solid. More responsible. More dependable. Which okay. actually I'm not real. I'm not really, but I think I was supposed to be those things. Like a good stick you'd use in the garden. I'm just gonna stick an ant in my garden and grow some peas around her. And Sarah's oh Sarah's more like sitting on the porch drinking an iced tea. <laughs> Sarah wears dresses. It's, it's so weird for you know uh, foundlings, changelings. Yeah. You know because we live out the what if like we live the prince and the pauper yeah we, we live that yes. we live well, like but, but i now i now believe that adoptees are aliens i in i truly like in my are guts you saying I think, space aliens or are you said don't say aliens, are you saying, like that 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 we are we are as good as aliens that our i believe our brains are significantly changed by loss and relinquishment and adoption that we are not the same beings as humans that didn't 
I think our brains are significantly different that, that we are a different species. I think it's my brain, my skin, my, I mean, it's all sort of one thing, but when we're created, we're a series of cells that start folding in on themselves and they create the nervous system and they create the brain and the skin and all of this is happening. And if you're in a body as so many adoptees are, that's a trauma bath, already you're in a different planet than a lot of people. And then you, you go from like you're the very core of you. I've been doing um, a lot of classes with Liz Koch. She studies the psoas and I think she's very interesting. And what she is talks the psoas? Of, the psoas is your deepest abdominal muscle. It's spelled P-S-O-A-S. I used to call her the Antichrist because she wrote a book called The Psoas Book. And her philosophy is that the psoas is part of the nervous system and you shouldn't touch it. And as a body worker, I thought the psoas was a muscle and I just worked the shit out of it. <laughs> and then I took her class and I understand, you know, we would, in workshops, we would work each other's psoas and then people would show up the next day just looking traumatized. And we thought that meant that trauma was leaving the body. But now what I see is perhaps we put trauma into the body I'm just starting to, to learn from her and taking her classes, but, but this idea that I'm getting from her is that, and I, I'm gonna say it all wrong, but this is what I've gotten so far, is that when we are being created and when the cells are folding, there is a streak of emptiness inside of us that everything is built around that. And I find that hugely hopeful because I think one of the hardest things as an adoptee is to feel empty and to think that, and to link that with hopelessness. But what if we are actually built around emptiness? What if that is our superpower that, and, and everybody, not just adoptees, but what if the very thing we fear the most being empty is the, actually the thing that could connect us to other people to ourselves and to other people, if we accept that it's in there instead of saying, see, it's further proof that I'm garbage or worthless because there's nothing in my core. But what if the nothing is space, like this wonderful space? How does one access that superpower? How does... Mm. Like what is I, the power I, and how do you yeah, access it? I think it has to do with um, doing less, lying down on the floor more and breathing deeply and actually feeling the body instead of doing anything. One reason I think adoptees are aliens is because it's like our brain and our skin and our nervous system is on fire or it's completely numb, but we're having a different experience with our body than most people people and um if you can tolerate that and lie on the floor with it for long enough i think you can go to the space you can find the space you just have to i think when we're born the terror of loss is lodged in our implicit memory and it seems like such a terrible thing that if we actually ever have those feelings we'll die but that's not true. 
they're just, they overwhelmed us as infants, but they're not gonna overwhelm us as now because we have language and we have community and we have therapists and we have beer. (laughs) (laughs) Not necessarily necessarily in that order. (laughs) Yeah, and I'm not a big proponent of beer because, you know, I've noticed that all it does is numb you, but I mean, I'm sort of making a joke, but not really. What I've noticed in doing the Flourish classes with Pam Cordano is that, and with my own work is that the the terror of facing who you are as an adoptee or feeling your feelings is much worse than the actual experience. So it's kind of like in a dream, if you face the thing that's chasing you, it vanishes. Yeah, Yeah. it's not that. It's just loneliness, fear, you know, (laughs) another Friday night. (laughs) Situation normal. Yeah, I'm fucking scared and lonely. (laughs) welcome to life (laughs) yeah even this morning I woke up and and I wake up generally kind of depressed like I don't wake up saying oh I get I get this day and I have to kind of talk myself into the day and I was thinking today I was thinking wow I think I work a lot harder like I think depression is something that I fight a lot more than I even know I fight and I think that um, I'm so used to it. You know, it's like it's like having a car that is kind of rusty and you just got to push the pedal a little harder and you get so used to it. And so if something happens, if a friend says they're going to come over and, and, they do, and they don't, it's, it's like I've spent all this energy putting a tablecloth on the table, putting a meal on the table, like a lot of energy doing this. And when someone doesn't show up, it's like the tablecloth just gets ripped from under the meal and everything goes flying. And what happens is all the work that I've put in the past day or week or month, you know, appearing okay or in working to be okay, just gets, it all gets, and I have to start all over again. It's just so exhausting when that happens. Cause it's not just, it doesn't just happen in the moment of, you know, now this day is really screwed up. It's my whole life is screwed up. And I'm back at ground, I'm back at like, do not return to, you know, do not pass go or jail. And you go back to jail and you have to start all over again, you know, pick the stuff off the floor, put the tablecloth back on the table. And you know, how many times it is, and then you're less willing to put all the nice things on the table or less willing to try as hard and you, because it's like, it's just going to get disrupted anyway. Right. And I mean, the wonderful thing about working with all these adoptees with Pam is, Oh, this is just, this is a normal reaction. And then I find myself actually being less triggered by that or less, activated by that because I know in my brain it still hurts right and I still have the feelings but I also have this awareness of hang on hang on hang on feelings 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 (laughs) don't do something stupid don't go don't go have a drink don't don't eat sugar like don't fuck it up even worse right just hang in there you know, we live with this negativity bias, which helps keeps us alive, right? Where we look for the dangers and we remember the dangers more than we remember the good things. And that when we're first born, it might even be for the first 10 months, I forget how long, we have a positivity bias. 
where we're more apt to remember the positive, which also helps keep us alive, right? But then we switch over to the negativity bias. And I find that as an adoptee, I am so hungry to feel bad. And that if there is a situation that makes me feel really bad, I, can, I get to ask myself, what do I get out of feeling bad right now? Like, why do I want to feel bad? And often it's just because I like feeling bad. Like that is more, I just want to feel bad. Like if my mom Why dies, do you like it though? I mean, why do, it's why familiar. do you- like it? It's familiar, that's home. That's, that's, that's the goldfish bowl I live in. It's, it's water that is not really, where I don't feel good about myself, where I don't feel safe, where I don't feel wanted. It, and then, so if, if I had three out of my four kids, if three kids gave me a goldfish bowl with nice water where I'm comfortable and I feel loved, I, I don't wanna be in that bowl, right? I wanna be in the shitty bowl because like, then I can feel upset. Right. Because you're upset also that your mom died. It's like and it's a complicated kind of upset. Right. So it's it's just easier. I think it's easier to feel shitty than good. <laughs> it's like I have a hard time accepting. You're going to be OK. You are OK. Like there is you're not ever going to not be taken care of. And I, I don't know why I can't just accept good things. Mm -hmm. Well, this is the first year where I have money in the bank. Congratulations. Th thank you. But it wasn't appealing to me before. I mean, I would say I wanted money and it was always like, I want more money. I want more money. But having money in the bank made absolutely no sense to me. And when I really looked at it, I realized two things. I realized I thought money disappeared. So why even have it in the bank? Because it doesn't mean it's safe. It's just going to disappear. And I realized it doesn't disappear. I spend it. And that I really, that hadn't, like the ownership of that hadn't sunk in. And, and, I, I, and I think that you could tie that to the mother disappears, right? You could tie that to, I didn't feel entirely safe in my house growing up because my brother could come in and like take stuff anytime. But but I think it's more that things disappear. And so I had to grow up, right? And, to, and then the other thing was to realize that, wow, I really, really like the feeling. Well, I hate it, but I really like the feeling of not being sure I'll have, be able to eat tomorrow. Like that, to live on that edge of panic is so familiar. And I didn't know what to do with myself when I had, I mean, the first thing I did actually was I spent tons of money on clothes. It was like, I was like a hoarder. It was years of not being able to buy the kind of clothes that I wanted. And partly it was COVID, you know, it was fun to, to but I did this weird hoarding, like, I mean, in my book, I wrote about wearing the same pair of underwear for a year in high school. So I bought like, you know, 75,000 pairs of <laughs> which is of course an exaggeration and I still have money I didn't I spent but I also made sure like I have a, a, an amount in my head what was crazy was I made an amount that I wanted in the bank that seemed unreasonable and for me you know I'm still we're not talking a lot of money we're, we're talking about just coming out of the bottom of the pool but 
I made an amount in my head. It was like, I raised the glass ceiling. Like this amount is possible. Like aim to have it by the end of the year. And I had it in six weeks. Can and you give me an idea? Is it too personal to ask? Like what that it's not, number it's, is? It's embarrassing how little it is. So tell me. Okay, I'll tell you, $5,000. So $5,000. Yeah, it's nothing. <laughs> but, but for me, it used to be like, do I have less than that? I, I generally had less. I generally, I could be, I generally had nothing. Wow. Yeah. So $5,000 to me means I can, for a month, like I could eat. Um, so I went from before, I went from 2000 to 5000 right? Like 2000 was the limit. That was how much I was comfortable. I couldn't bear to have more than $2,000 even though all I wanted was money. And now I'm at 5,000 and I, I, I have to do, I have to re-acclimate and shoot for more. Cause I'm still, that's as much as I can bear right now. Like that's as is, much comfort. Is it that I don't deserve to have more than that? Is it self-sabotage or? It's that then I'm a real person. I'm safe in the world. Like what the hell am I gonna do if I'm not worried about my safety? really like, what am I gonna do with that energy? I, I can't even, I don't wanna be that person. I mean, because if I'm not worried about money, I've been worried about money since I, re, like, since I was like four, probably. It's so fundamental to my being. And so I don't recognize who I would be if I'm not worried about money. And it sounds like, well, that would be so great but it's still a loss, right? I still don't, I'm still, then I'm not myself anymore. And it's amazing how much I have to ease into this. If you gave me a million dollars right now, ugh, I would, <laughs> I'm not ready yet. So of course I'm not gonna have a million dollars, right? And I, there's something about money that's tied to worth. Well, I think, I feel like I was born in empty piggy bank. Right? Like my mother didn't have enough money or like there wasn't enough to support me. So then these other people bought me. So they put money into the piggy bank. Right. And so then I have, so then I'm worth $250 or whatever, $1,200. And then I need to be supported because I'm a baby. So they keep putting money into the piggy bank. Right. But, but that's what I, I mean, my favorite thing was when people put money into the piggy bank, right. It was like my dad, like if, if I was angry at my parents, I would find some way to have them put money in the piggy bank, right? It's like, okay, I, I can't get the love I want. So I'm gonna, I'm, I don't know, I, I need a thousand dollars or whatever. Like the understanding that I am my own person and I can't be bought is so radical. And that I don't need it. I don't need anybody to keep me alive. I can do it myself. Is, I mean, then I'm not who they wanted me to be, right? Then who am I? Am I safe? Am I likable? It's so much easier just to stay broken and empty. It's not easier at all. <laughs> it's horrible. It just, feels easier because I know at least I stayed alive that way. Like if I'm flourishing and flying, how do I know that's safe? I don't have any proof. 
Yeah, it's so sad. It's exhausting. I think I, I hustle 24 seven. And in the afternoons when I'm losing energy and I can't like perform, I feel terrible. I hate the afternoons because I can't, I'm not earning it. I'm not earning my, I'm not doing something. And it, it's a terrible feeling. And I was talking to Pam Cordano about this yesterday. Cause I was telling her, you know, the closer, the more free I feel as an adoptee, the more intense the feel. It's like they're coming to the surface, and they're even. And and I have this really fundamental core belief that at my core I'm so ugly. Like, so if I go out into the world, if I'm with people, I have to keep moving so they don't see the ugliness. And when and by I'm ugly, do you mean physically, or do you mean? both physically and all, everything about me. It's like, I just, I just, I just picture this, like this muck, like just, just hideous, like unacceptable, unacceptable, not, not any, not anything anyone would like. And I can catch, that's why I have to be careful about eating sugar. Cause if I eat sugar, the after I go, I, I hit ugly, right? It's like, and ugly means you're a burden on the universe. Like you better step up your game. Like you better get a haircut. You better get some new clothes. Like you bet you better, like what can you do to be more sparkly? And I think that there is this, I can, I can feel it. It's like, it's coming to the surface and I'm finally going to get to see it. And then I'm going to get to see how ridiculous it is, but it's been in there for so long and it's buried so deep in my brain really, really believes it's true. And so my brain believes in the hustle, you know, it's like the owner of Spirit Hill Farm was here yesterday and she said, you know, you seem peaceful. And I told her, you know, I'm just hustling less. It feels like I'm cheating you. It feels like I'm getting away with murder. I, I don't even notice how hard I work. It feels like I'm not working hard, but I think to anyone else, I'm working really hard, but I'm just not working as hard as I was the first year when I was working all the time. And what did she say when you said that? Yeah, she said, like, you're doing great. You know, the place looks great. And I want to get to the place where I can hear that and believe it, but it's like, I can feel it's this core inside of me. That's like a magnet that pushes away all the other magnets. It doesn't click. And I feel like, you know, maybe that's when people have some sort of spiritual awakening and then they feel that click, like, Oh, God loves me or the world loves me. And I've had moments. I mean, I know moments enough of, I mean, I can teach other people that because I can see it in other people. Like, of course the world loves you, you know, like, of course you're fine. I would like to get that to that place myself before I die. I wrote a book about how to really not feel good when you're adopted, but I would really like to write a book about how to feel good. And I would like to do it in a way that's accessible to everyone. And, and I do think that I can I've done so much work and I, I mean, I work every day, you know, I live at Spirit Hill Farm, I, I do, 
I am so committed to the belief that there, my brain is confused and that there is, I can tap into love and I want to do it on my own. And maybe that's another adoptee behavior. Like I got, I got this, but if I look at my path, I, I think I can do it. I think I'm, I'm doing all the right things. Um, so I think it's cool that I work with Pam who's doing those things so she can talk from that side and then I'm over here. And also being so close to someone who's doing those things, I, I, get, I get to draft off her. You know, I have experiences when she does those things. I have intense experiences. So I think also just having some of us do those things might change the whole clan. Because um, we just need to be able to see what's possible. What super impressed me about you and Pam and going through a workshop that you two led, actually two workshops that you two led, mm -hmm. were that you did not offer the opportunity for a group of a dozen or so adoptees to lead with a victim story. Mm -hmm. like there was no opportunity and that's almost like it's the default setting to, for people to sit around and and sort of talk about you know pain and trauma but rather began with a prompt to say your future doesn't have to look like your past and you have the power to write that future like you can write it into existence what i like to say is if you stick by your story, you stay stuck in that story. Mm -hmm. Like if you're dug in to that story, your reward is you're stuck in it. There's your story. Your future looks mm -hmm. exactly like your past. You're not growing. Um, and you guys did so well about giving us just rudimentary exercises to look toward the future and not to stay stuck in the mm -hmm. same loop like with the record playing the same record over and over again. How did you arrive at that? That's a great question. And the first time Pam and I met face to face, that the, our very first meeting, we sat down and we did a drawing of where we would like to be, I think five years from then or a year from then. So we were already thinking about the future. And it was the thing about being with Pam is it's, it, and what we do in the um, in the workshops and in Flourish is we just try to show people what we do with our friendship. And in our friendship, we definitely acknowledge adoption trauma and we definitely talk about it, but it's not the top thing we talk about. The, the top thing generally, I mean, if one of us takes a hit and feels really bad, we, we super focus on that. But it's with the understanding that we we have this one life and what are you gonna do with it? And so it's so great to be able to really go deep with some, and Pam has taught me, because when she would talk about feeling bad, my impulse was to try to tell her it was gonna be okay. But what she would tell me is she just wanted me to share her feelings. And I didn't, I had to learn that. And it's actually a really neat thing. So when she's telling me something from a hurt place, and I'm just learning, I'm not saying this is right or wrong, but it feels good to me is that I really listen to her and I try to imagine what it would, 
I listen and I feel, I feel what she's feeling. And I think that after a lifetime of like feeling like seeing that the world's not recognizing my own feelings, you know, that I didn't know that that was okay to do even, you know, I thought that would mean that I was codependent or that I would get lost, but it's, it's so lovely just to, I don't have to fix her. I just feel, and I say, wow, this is horrible, right? And then she does the same thing for me. And to have someone share your feel, like sit in your feelings and not try to fix them is so incredible. And I, and, and I, and I see in the adoptee groups, you know, there's, there's this feeling of I should heal, I should change, you know, I should, I, and there's so much pressure when really just, just existing and being present for other people in this, in this way is all, it's like, I'm learning how to be human instead of a series of defense mechanisms meant to protect my tender heart which didn't get held or mirrored the way it needed to. I think I live in panic grief. And, and I think that movie Gravity with Sandra um, Bullock, you know, the director was trying to create a story about being alone. And so he created a, a movie about space because the ultimate vision of being alone would be to be untethered in space. And I would argue that it, it's more than you miss your mommy. I would argue that you have faced the edge of obliteration and that there is a moment in between, like I, had, I was part of my mother's body and now I'm no longer in that, in that universe, even though that is my universe. So it's so confusing to the brain, like that deep, deep unmoored feeling. I don't see how that would ever go away. I don't see how, I mean, maybe, you know, maybe with drugs, they, I mean, if our brain, if our cells are continually um, replenishing and dying, maybe it goes away, maybe. But I love that idea of what if I name that feeling of being unmoored in space and being unsafe? Because I, I am going to return to it, right? That it's is- It's coming back. It's, it's coming back. And so instead of living in terror, I, I, I love that. I love that. I want to ask you about something that I'll never feel. And that is being a motherless daughter, a daughter who did not get to breastfeed or bond with her mother. You then became a mother to a daughter who very much lay on you and bonded with you. Mm -hmm. um, when you gave birth to your daughter what happened like what did you understand that you would not have understood had you never had a child when you described that i didn't lay on my mother and i like felt that when you said it what first came to my head was i hate everybody like i hate humanity and so i have this umbrella that covers everything that's this deep mistrust of life and people. And under that umbrella is my individual experience of having a daughter, which was phenomenal. 
you know, it's like, wow, I am a living being. I did create this being. She is feeding from my body, but there's also a sense of it being surreal. It's my, it's mine and not mine. And I don't think that I would have that same feel. And I think that deeply affects her. Like I'm both there and not there. And the there part is almost too much there, you know, like insecure there, like, you know, some sort of attachment disorder there where if I could just plug into the mother, I could take a deep breath, relax, be a real person, and then hold my daughter and be alive and present instead of like, riding a stationary bike at 5,000 miles an hour just to keep it going. It's tough, Stuart. It's tough, man. Do you have compassion for your mom and dad and for your biological mother and father? And if so, how did you develop that compassion? Because a lot of adoptees carry a lot of rage, which they project on some member of that foursome. Yeah, I've gone through my biological half brothers and sister don't talk to me. They really they had made an effort, but I was such an entitled pain in the ass. I totally understand why they wouldn't want contact with me anymore. And I really believed that my birth mother and birth father owed me something. I believe that they owed me information. I believe they owed me to meet me. And I don't believe that anymore. I, I feel like, you know what, a man and a woman have sex and they make a baby. Like, I'm sorry, it happens all the time. And once you start thinking you're special, and that the people that made you owe you something, then it's, you become a burden and you become a pain in the ass. And, and I, I, I mean, I've been there, so I understand, but I also just think it's not reasonable. Like, I think you can be a woman and you can have a baby and just wish you hadn't had it. And that's not a crime. And it doesn't mean that the baby is garbage. It just means there is something bigger, there's life right? Like these were the two portals that created us, but that's not the be all, be all and end all. Those are just, those are just the two little things that created this, us, this one little person. And then we get so inflated, right? Like I'm so important and I'm garbage at the same time, which is super confusing. But, and also I know, I mean, I wasn't adopted by people that hurt me, you, you know, physically or sexually or, and they were the same race as me. And they, I, I got to come from this country. They didn't steal me really. So from this like, bubble of privilege, I also understand that I was a baby that needed a home. I wrote a book that was really just, I just, I, ra I raged a lot. I, it's so easy to say things could have been better. Things could have been different. Like my parents really blew this, but there is also ownership of like, what's my part of it. And I can be furious that I'm adopted, but also be like, completely responsible for my life. And that's where I'm headed now. And, you know, part of that is I don't have all that much contact with my dad. You know, I love my dad and it's really hard. To, and I hope to God he doesn't hear this there's also sort of recognizing like I didn't he gave he gave me the best that he could growing up and I love him a lot and there's so much pain that he wasn't he was and he wasn't my dad 
And that's, I mean, I could make myself, I, I could go down a rabbit hole right now, but I would rather not. <laughs> and, and I think that, so what I can do is I can go to like, he, he did his best, right? And that, what do I need? I need to feel loved. And if I am banging on the door of these people that really just don't have the bandwidth for it, I'm wasting my time. So I can feel loved by myself and I can feel loved by the people that are in my life now. And I, I can also choose to have a tantrum for my whole life and want to have what I didn't get as a baby. But what's that going to get me? Don't you think we're getting more clued in? Maybe not as rapidly as we need to be, but don't you think adopting parents are little more receptive and, and kind of trying to get clued in? I mean, isn't yes. there a little hope? Yep, I think there is. And yep. not so defensive? Yep, I mean, so many adoptees are talking that it's you can't ignore it anymore. There's just so many, so many of us have become verbal, so. It's At the same time, when someone says to me, you were so lucky, I say, yes, I was. Yeah. And I say, yes, I was. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think I, I, I mean, what I've noticed is I needed to have a tantrum for four or five years. <laughs> and then it doesn't, it just, I'm tired of it. But I, I think I needed to do it because it's like all these feelings that you have as a kid and you don't know that you have them. And so it's, it's like, why not rail against the system you know, and against for a while, but then like also life is so short and once you clean out the bucket, then it's like now, now, now what, what can I do now? Also, I had someone tell me, I think you wrote your book, Stuart, to, to get it out of your system, that you're going to go on and write other things and do other things that, that it wasn't like one be all and end all. And there's no such thing as one memoir. It's very rare that you see people one and done. You know, mm -hmm. you can keep telling various parts of the story mm -hmm. and the story kind of keeps going on. You can have the same data set and go back and look at it. Yeah. And your book is the same way. Your book has helped many, many people. And you, Anne Heffron, have helped me and many, many, many people. So I, I want to say thank you. Thank you. I will never forget our first phone call. So it's like you're talking to a ball of super smart energy, loving energy, and it hasn't changed. <laughs> God bless you. Thank you for you. doing this. Thank you for this time. This thank was you. super fun. Yeah. Okay. I love you. Love you. Anne Heffern is writing and coaching writers and teaching and mentoring and also managing a farm in Southern California, uh, as you heard her say. I am so grateful and joyous to just know her. I mean, it's not like a sister. It's, 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 it's just like this this lifelong friend, this guardian angel. Thank you, Anne. 
Man Listening is a production of Unmediated LLC in cooperation with the Queen City Podcast Network and Balto Creative Media. Allison Andrews at Andrews Creative and Rachel Clapp Miller are developmental producers. Sally Higgins at Higgins and Owens tries to keep us legal. Our music is A Day at the Park by the group Pictures of the Floating World. Your announcer is Catherine Smith. That's me. Please go to our Patreon page. You'll find us at patreon.com. Look for Man Listening, one word, no spaces. We hope you'll join us by becoming a member. A small investment can raise up the conversation. If you want exclusive member merch, like a t-shirt, we can arrange that too. Thank you, thank you, thank you to everyone who has supported the concept of man listening, uplifting, elevating, the resilient stories of powerful women who bounce back. Thanks so much. Don't forget to support us at Patreon. We believe one voice can change the conversation. Click the subscribe button and next week you'll hear. I wasn't black enough for them. And so um, a lot of my junior high, when I look back and think about it, I was just terrorized. That's next week on Man Listening. Thanks.